You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. I want you to think back to when you were a kid. Back to when the darkness terrified you. For me, it was when spring, summer, fall, the ball got away from us in the backyard. All day long, we'd be playing basketball, baseball, playing catch with the football, wouldn't matter, and the ball would get over our head, and we'd go get it. And at some point, it would happen once the sun went down. And to my recollection, my memory as a kid is that our driveway led up to our, our detached garage, and we had this big, long expanse behind it where the light from the porch didn't reach. And there were bushes and trees back there behind the garage, and it was dark, and there were monsters in there. And so the ball would get away, and my brother and I would look at each other and say, uh, touched it last. That was always the rule. Whoever touched it last had to get it. So if you threw a bad pass, it was on you to go get it. And if you touched it, the pass was catchable. If you got a finger on it, it was on you to go get it. And so you would do this thing where one kid would start easing towards the porch and the other would start tiptoeing towards the end of the garage. And as soon as your feet reached the point where it was too dark, you sprinted in, grabbed the ball, and sprinted back out. And you just knew that there were monsters in there nipping at your heels all the way until you got back into the light. And you knew it. They existed out there. Well, then you go camping. And your first time camping, it's really, really dark. And there are noises out there in the darkness. And it confirms to you that there are indeed monsters out there. And you are right to be afraid of it. And you have confirmation of it now. And you are never going out in the dark ever again. And But maybe you go back out again. Maybe you develop a lifetime, lifelong fear of the dark. But maybe you don't. Maybe you go back out into the dark. Whether it's camping. Whether it is playing in that backyard again. Maybe it's hunting. Maybe it's exploring with friends. And you spend enough time in the dark, and your eyes start to adjust to it. You start to notice what's going on in there. And the first thing you notice is that the source of the sounds are generally not what you expected them to be. And you find out what those those animals are that are making the noise. And they're always smaller than they sound. A squirrel can make a big, big noise moving through dry leaves in the woods. A deer sounds like a bear. It's, it's just not, they don't line up. When it is dark, when you can't see, when you don't know what's going on, everything's magnified in, in the, its potential for how bad it can be. And you spend more time out there. And you learn these things and you realize the things that I thought were monsters were really not as big or as bad as I thought. And then eventually you realize there are some, some things out here that have potential for danger, but they're as afraid of me as I am of them. They're going to leave me alone for the most part. And then if you spend long enough out there, you realize that you're explaining to the people around you what's going on. Oh, don't worry about it. It's just this. It's fine. You'll be fine in a day or two. And you're explaining to your kids someday, listen, there are no monsters out there. Everything's fine. And they don't believe you and they have to experience it for themselves. And That's how it goes. Well, racing, running, lifting, starting a new regimen, quality workouts, big efforts. This is the exact same thing that we all deal with. You look out there into the unknown 
and you don't know what it's going to be like, but you know that it's not good. You know that it's scary. You know that there are monsters out there in the dark. A race that you've never run before, if you've never raced or you've never raced competitively or you've never had a goal with racing, that's a scary, that's a scary thought. If you're looking at the start of a rebuild, you've been injured for so long or you've been sick or work took you away or life circumstances, the idea of getting back to a training plan, it is a dark foreboding forest in front of you. If you have never worked out a day in your life and you've made a New Year's resolution to start up, there are a lot of monsters out there. You don't know what is going to be out there, but you know it's going to suck. If you've been a lifelong runner, but no structure, you just go out there and run and you want to start doing interval work, speed work, quality long runs. You don't know what exactly it's going to be like, but you know that it's going to be miserable. It's dark out there and the monsters are lurking. And just like being a kid, there's only one way to get through that, and that's to go spend some time in the dark. Now, you can do it with others, just like I had to as a kid. I had to go camping with my parents, with my aunts and uncles, with my cousins. And being around other people gives you courage in the dark. That's the nature of it. Right, if there's someone next to you, well, maybe the monster gets them. Maybe the monster gets me. Maybe the monster is scared of numbers and our collective size, like a black bear. If we judge, we're just bigger together, it'll backpedal and go. That's the easy way to enter the darkness. But no matter what your process is, whether it's solo, whether it's in a group, whether it's with a friend, whether it's just sprinting into the backyard and dashing away, you know, dipping your foot and dashing away and then spending more and more time in there. The process doesn't change. The longer you spend in the dark, the more accustomed to the dark you are. Workouts. Your first interval session, you're not going to be able to get off the toilet beforehand. Your first time doing speed work, you're going to be so nervous about how bad it's going to be. But what's the worst thing that happens? It's exactly what you thought it was going to be, and you never go back. But it's never like that. You get out there and you realize, oh, this isn't that bad. And there's a reason why millions of people do this every day. It's not that bad, but it left me wanting a little bit more. Now I'm curious. Can I make it deeper into the woods next time? What about that other dark patch that I thought was terrible, but it wasn't as dark as I thought when I got out there. I think I could make it over there and check, check that out. That's the way this stuff goes. You get to a race. And just like when you're camping, some of your fears are, are confirmed. There are noises out here. There are monsters in there. Because you get there and you realize, look at all these fit people. Look at all these people who are absolute monsters. Why would I ever think I belong here? And then you leave and you think, well, they put in a lot of work to get there. And I did better or worse than I thought, but I see where I can improve. And all right, they're not so scary anymore. Yeah, they're a lot better than me. Yeah, the race was a lot harder, but I didn't die. I'm going to go back and try it again. And you move on again and again and again. And eventually, the darkness isn't so dark. And the way that night vision adjusts is not all at once. It's not like putting on night vision goggles. It just slowly realize you can see. And you're not exactly sure when it happened. You just stopped not being able to see and you started being able to see more. That's the way these workouts work. That's the way starting up a plan is. It's really bad until one day you realize it's not so bad anymore. I don't feel terrible. In fact, I don't remember the last day I woke up dreading the workout. It's not all at once. You just suddenly all at once you realize it snuck up on me. It's the way racing is. Suddenly you find yourself looking forward to it. You're not exactly sure when that switched. 
you find yourself talking to one of those monsters after the race or at the start line, and you're not sure when you got the courage to do that. But you adjust your night vision over time, and the only way to adjust your night vision is to spend time in the dark. The only way to handle that that lactate overload is to spend time around it. The only way to really handle and survive under oxygen debt is to spend time in oxygen debt. The only way to handle the pounding and the fatigue of a long run or a long mountain race is to spend time doing long runs or long mountain runs or long hill workouts. It's not complicated and it's not sexy and it's not even very inviting from the beginning, but the more you do it, the more you realize the more I do it, the better it's going to get. Your night vision just adapts. And you start seeing clearly that, yeah, there are things out here, but most of them aren't the monsters I thought they were. And then, over time, if you are lucky enough and dedicated enough, you will get to the point where you realize, not only can I see in the dark, not only are there some monsters out here, but they're not, they're not scary to me anymore, I've become one of those monsters. You look around initially and there are people that you think, I could never be that. I could never look like that. I could never run that fast. I could never run that long. I could never work out that many days in a row. These people are monsters. And then eventually, if you stay in the dark long enough, the people who are currently afraid of the dark come to you for advice. Those people are going to come up and tell you how scary the dark is. And you're going to be like, no, it's not that bad. Trust me. I was there. Just spend a little more time in the dark. There are no monsters out here. And you start to notice that they might be looking at you like, ooh, I just stumbled upon one of those monsters. If you spend enough time in there, it becomes your strength rather than your weakness. You spend enough time doing nasty workouts, you're going to be nasty in a race. You spend, If you're never going to be fast, but you spend a long enough time doing long runs and long climbs and descents, at some point, you're going to be a monster out on long mountain races. Even if you don't have any foot speed whatsoever. You're going to be able to endure and handle just about anything. The people who spend the most time in the darkness, eventually the darkness has no control over them, but then eventually the darkness becomes their weapon. So we look at some people we've talked to in the past. People who would be self-proclaimed, not gifted runners, uh, not even fast not having any talent in what they become. So the the one I, that always comes to mind with me would be Justin Hamilton. Justin Hamilton has, as far as I know, never broken 20 in a 5K. If he has, he's never broken 19 in a 5K. He's never broke five minutes in a mile. Now, for a lot of people, you would look at it and say, I don't care if you break six minutes in a mile, that's fast. But in the running world, if you as a male can't run under five minutes in a mile, While you still may be very successful um, in your local scene, you cannot be elite. It's just not possible. The current world record is under 440 pace per mile for a marathon. Women are running 5.0 pace, 505, 5.06, 5.02 I think it's down to for a marathon. So as a man, if you can't break five minutes in a mile, you can't be... Even if you ran 510, you wouldn't be a world-class female marathoner if you could PR 26 times in a row. So the point is Justin Hamilton is not fast. He does not have foot speed, as people like to say. He doesn't have that speed talent. But he is an elite ultra endurance athlete. And there's no way around that. And how did he become that? 
he spent time in the darkness. His darkness sometimes is quite literally darkness. He is out in the woods going after Big Vert day in and day out. It is rarely fast. Even the descents that he's bombing are so nasty and technical and dangerous that he's very rarely getting under seven-minute pace going down those mountains. But it's aggressive. It is dark. He is spending time in the scary areas, and he did it for years, and now he has won 12-hour races, 24-hour races. He has won last-man-standing competitions where you're looking at 36, 40, 48 hours. He's in contention in every ultra race he does because he spent time in the darkness. And eventually, he became one of those monsters. People look at his exploits and they think, that man is a monster. This is a man who quit the military. Just decided one day he did not handle it anymore. It was done. I cannot, will not, I don't want it anymore. He is now one of those monsters. We have both in us. We all have the ability to quit and walk away, and we all have the ability to become a monster. So what I would challenge you in the new year is to look around and decide which monsters are most intriguing to me. Might be a runner, might be a lifter, might be a hybrid athlete, might be an OCR athlete, might be an ultra athlete. It could be a triathlete. I don't care what it is, but what sort of physical and mental monster is most intriguing to you? What sort of physical and mental monster is most intriguing, is most alluring to you? When you look at someone and say, if I could just be that, oh my goodness, that would complete everything about me. Well, you have that in you to some capacity. Will I ever be an elite marathoner? No. I would never be an elite marathoner on the female side. But can I emulate the type of monster that those people have become? Yes. So in this new year, start a list. Write down the the people, the monsters that you would like to be more like. We all do it when we're kids. We all have sports idols we look up to. We all have human role models we look up to. We might have business role models we look up to. Why do we stop doing that as adults? Those are the dreams that get us through childhood. We're still wired the same way. See something you want to be, aspire to it, make the plan to get there, and then get there. So that's what I want people to do. I want people to look and say, I cannot believe Justin Hamilton never gives up in an ultra. No matter how outmatched he is in foot speed, no matter how outmatched he is with 5K potential or PRs, he doesn't back down from anyone. And he is willing to sit in the darkness until it gets too dark for the other person and then calmly go about his way winning. He'll sit in whatever amount of hurt necessary, knowing that if I can just get to 24 hours, if I can get to 36 hours, suddenly I start having the advantage. That mentality, that mindset, that's one type of monster. Someone else we've interviewed would be Ryan Atkins. Ryan Atkins is a freak of nature in many ways. He has extraordinarily large lung capacity. He has a proclivity towards many different types of physical activity. He also is not particularly fast if you took every single world champion in endurance sports and lined them up in a row from fastest 5K to slowest. He would be on this side. He has a downhill 1440, I think, 5K uh, with significant downhill which most people wouldn't count if you did count it even as a 1440. 
I wouldn't get you very far in the world champion lineup. You'd have everything down to, what, 1240-ish right now in the world? All the way up to maybe maybe 16 minutes at some ultra. But he'd be closer to the 16 than he would be to the 12s at 1440. And yet, he is in contention in every single endurance competition he steps up to. He's an OCR world champion. He's a Spartan Race world champion. He was the runner-up at TMX, the Tough Mudder X competition, which was basically CrossFit with running. He was riding with the lead pack at the Leadville 100 mountain bike race. He was a Canadian national class mountain biker and downhill biker, I believe. He was a world champion unicyclist. I mean, these are bizarre things to combine together into one pot, but he can do it all. Because he spent more time in the darkness than any other person. He's just always out there. He's always cold, or he's always hot, or he's always tired, or he's always working through deep impact on mountains. He's just always spending time in it. He's always freezing on an ice flow or sweating on, uh, on some sort of exposed face rock climbing. He works out in every season, every time of day, in every duration possible. He biked across the Arctic. I mean, he's, he's just anything he's done. He tied for first place in the fat tire version of the Iditarod. You know, over a thousand miles biking through sub-zero temperatures. Whatever realm he steps into, despite being slow by world champion standards, he gets it done because he has been in the dark with the monsters as much as anyone else has. Look at someone like uh, Danny Moreno, who we had on was never a All-American in track and field, as far as I can recall. She was never the best at any sort of running she did. She was always good, but never great. And now she's a world-class mountain runner. And she did it on her own. She was guiding people during the day and just running in her free time, self-coached, without a watch, just running. Let's see if I can get to that place and back. Let's see if I can make it out to that peak and back. Can I make it and then walk, swim, jog out to that island and back? She did a lot of these type of things, just her on her own, in the wilderness, in the darkness. And then suddenly she was revealed as she's one of those monsters that's lurking out there. And now you see her. She's top 10 at Golden Trail Series. She's top 10 at these world championships. She's podiuming events. She's winning mountain, uh, mountain trail marathon, mountain marathon races. Uh, the marathon, the sub ultra marathon or sub marathon mountain racing. I'm butchering those phrases. Uh, basically 50K and under. Danny is as good as just about anyone in the world at. She spent time out in the darkness becoming a monster. So take a look at these people. Maybe you want to look at the Elio Kichogis. Maybe you want to look at those people who are freaks, the freaks of the freaks, and say, what could I be more like? Or maybe you want to look at the Justin Hamiltons and say, he's one of the common folk, but he's become a monster. I don't care which one you look at, but start identifying who do I want to be more like? Whose mentality do I want? Whose endurance do I want? Whose ability to control a race with their mind do I want? Whose ability to never miss a workout? Maybe it's a run streaker. We had uh, we had Tim Lambiris on. He's twinning the race on Instagram. We had him on, and he has, like, what is it? Tim, I'm going to be way off on this, but like a five-year run streak going. He hasn't missed a run in five years. He had surgery, went out for a one-mile run. Wife gave birth. He jogged around the hospital for a mile. He didn't miss. Now, I don't care what you feel about run streakers. 
we could all do to have more consistency in our life. So find someone something that is a monster at what they do and then think, what darkness do they spend time in that I do not currently enter? I look out through the windows at that and I think, nope, not for me. Well, that decision right there is why they are and you aren't. That's it. Because talent can be explained away, but time spent in the darkness translates to every pursuit in life. I do not care what the pursuit is. Talent matters until it doesn't. Time spent in the darkness never, ever, ever goes away. So identify those traits. Identify the characteristics. Put metrics to it. They're currently doing X, Y, and Z, and I don't do those things. I don't go into this part of the woods, and they live in there. And then hold yourself to it. Put yourself in that uncomfortable spot early and often in this new year. Get the badness out of the way. Like plunge it into cold water. Sucks. But it sucks a little bit less each time, and it's always going to be not great. But eventually it's not scary anymore. Eventually you don't get worked up over it anymore. The people who you see on YouTube who are getting themselves all (laughs) pumped up before they get into the, uh, the ice tub are either just doing it for show or they're doing it just for the camera. Meaning they're not afraid of it, but they're putting on a show to show how tough and cold they are. Or they're not used to doing this and they're just doing it because the camera's on them that day. We took ice baths probably three, four times a week in college. After the first week of practice, you just get into it while you're talking. You might get a little like, ooh, as you get in there, and then you just settle right back in. Read magazines, chat with each other. We didn't really do the whole smartphone thing back then. Um, But I'm sure that nowadays everyone's just on their phone. And anyone who spends time doing ice baths doesn't get worked up about ice baths anymore. The moment you touch it, you're always like, ooh, yeah, that's right, that's bad. And then you settle right back into, all right, I just relax and I breathe it out. I'm not making any movements in the water. Every time I make a movement, it gets really cold in that spot again. So I'm just going to chill out and relax. And it's fine. And you just get it done. The people who are putting on a big show about it, it's probably their first time or they're just putting on a show to look tough. Cold water goes away. Entering it always sucks, but then you learn to handle it because you realize it's not going to kill me because you're not doing it in a life-altering state. (laughs) You're not doing it when you're stranded in the woods. You're doing it in a controlled environment. Cold water gets better. Long runs get better. Races get better. Spicy, stinging, nausea-inducing speed work, it gets better. I would wager that most pro runners do not throw up in workouts, even if they used to, because it just gets better. You handle it better. You stop dreading it as much. So take a look at what darkness they're spending a time in, spending more time than you, or maybe you're not entering at all, and program that into your life. If that darkness is waking up in the morning and working out, program that in. If that darkness is going out for a consistent long run every week or every other week or every nine days, program that in. If that darkness is going to a race and testing yourself despite the fact that you don't want to fail on a noticeable level, you don't want eyes on you when you're hurting, program it in. Start with a small race if you have to, or sign up for a massive race where there's going to be 20,000 people and no one's going to notice you. You're just a face in the crowd, but program it in. If you are afraid of intense speed work, program it in. Start manageable. Start with shorter intervals and then give yourself room to grow. If you're afraid of weight of the weight room, start light, 
start in the darkness away from everyone else. Do it in your basement. Go through all the motions until you get it right before you step into the public spotlight, whether it's a gym or a CrossFit box or even just a workout with your buddies at your house. But just program it in and get started doing it. Because the only way to get night vision is to spend time in the dark. Now, I was watching Ayla at wrestling practice the other day. For those those of you who don't know, Ayla is seven years old and she started wrestling this year because she asked to. She just is kind of built for it. She loves it. That's her mentality. Well, on day two of wrestling, they had their first actual contact with each other, and they did a, a Sharks and Minnows game where you had to use your duck walk or penetration step, whatever you want to call it, the, the motion you make walking on your knees where you would shoot in for a takedown. You could only be on your knees, and it was Sharks and Minnows. Uh, someone's it. If they were able to get you down to the ground, you were now on their team to go get more people. And you go until there's only one person left. That person gets swarmed and then it's over. Well, she was one of the last people left. And she had a very interesting situation arise. And that was she wasn't paying attention. And she was dealing with kids on her legs. And out of her dead spot here, out of her blind spot, a kid ran towards her to come tackle her. And she turned when he was about three feet away from her and he was starting to lunge towards her. Now, that's an interesting situation because what happens there, you cannot control. And there are really only two camps of people. There are only people wired one way or the other when you really break it down. When someone flinches at you, and you see this all the time on hitting cameras or prank shows or funniest video shows... When someone flinches at you or lunges at you or swings at you or something falls at you, there's only two types of people. You are either column A or column B, and you are born that way. You can't control which one you were born as. There's the type of person that when it happens, they flinch back, and there's the type of person who reacts to force with force. And Ayla, I was always pretty sure that she was reacts with aggression, and I saw it coming. You could see the boy coming towards her. She didn't see it. This is going to be interesting. She's either either going to get blindsided or something's going to happen here. There's going to be a reaction. And she catches the motion out of the corner of her eye. She turns and looks, and without thinking, throws two forearms forward and lunges at him and caught him off guard, surprised, and his feet went right out from underneath him and he dropped to his back. And it was this hilarious moment. She's small. She's a skinny little seven-year-old. And he was probably a little older and all the parents were laughing and clapping. It was awesome to see because everyone laughed it off. And then he jumped back on top of her and wrestled her down and there were no hard feelings. But it was the most cool for me as a parent to watch reveal which type of kid she was. Now, I know for a fact that Brayden would be the opposite. I don't know what Mira would be. Brayden would duck. I'm naturally a flincher. I would flinch away. Now, you can break down what those categories, within those subcategories, there's differences. Some people would move away in order to get a better angle. Some people would move away thinking, all right, what's my next move going to be? And some people would just cower in fear. Some people lunge forward blindly out of fear. Some people would lunge forward out of aggression. Some people would lunge forward out of anger. Some people would lunge forward with a plan. But you can't change at your core what you're wired for. When something flies at you out of nowhere, you're either a flincher or you're an attacker. And you cannot change what you are at your core. But you can train it out of you. 
because both sides have their positives and have their negatives. That's non-negotiable. Whether you're a, a reactor forward or a reactor backwards, there are positives, positives and negatives to both of those things. If you are a flincher, if someone stepped out from behind a wall and tried to tackle you or, or went to throw a, a punch at you, if you're a flincher, there's a good chance that you avoid contact because of that. You're going to take less damage if it doesn't hit you. That's a positive. It means you have good reflexes. That's a very good positive. Now, there are also negatives to it. There are times when forward aggression is the quickest way out of a situation. It means that you're programmed to meet challenges head on rather than shy away from them. So if you shy away from it, that carries over into other areas of your life as well. You're more likely to back away from a challenge or a goal. Now, maybe you, re you regroup and go back towards it eventually, but your reaction to when someone flinches at you is your, re your initial gut reaction in every area of life. Now, on the flip side, if when someone flinched at you, your reaction is immediately to strike out, and you see these on these hidden camera shows, America's Funniest Home Videos, someone's playing a prank on one of their friends, they open the door and jump at them. Half the time, the person falls over or shrieks or something, but sometimes the person punches them or tackles them and then says, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. They didn't even think. Their body just reacted with a blow because they're wired to aggressively meet anything that pops up at them. And that's what Ayla did. And it's cool to see. And it's funnier to see a little girl do that than a little boy for some reason. For a boy, I might roll my eyes and be like, oh, we got to get that under control. But seeing my tiny little daughter do that, I think that's really cool. How is that going to manifest in life? How is that going to keep her safe someday? How is that going to make sure that she's not taken advantage of someday? Different conversation for a different day. But when you are a forward reactor to when things pop up in front of you, that's your initial reaction to everything in life as well. We can't control that. That's the way we're wired. When something pops up, you're more apt to charge at it and try it than you are to back away. Now, there's a lot of positives to that. I can get you ahead in life. That can get the attention of people around you, from bosses, from managers, coaches, uh, people that you might be looking to date or marry. Those things, those, those forward movements draw the attention. And they, sh they spotlight that you have something special. However, they also can hang you out to dry. If you move forward against something you're not prepared for, you're just exposed and you're going to fail. And that can be really difficult for some people who are, who are wired to aggressively attack things if you're consistently failing. So there's, there's pluses and minuses to both sides. But the point of all of this is that we can't change the way we're wired. We can't change if we're naturally afraid of the dark but we can train it out of ourselves. There's a, a line in a book I read once that said, what does military training really do? It makes people appear smarter than they are by giving them pre-programmed responses to situations that arise. And that's always stuck with me because it's true across the board in everything. If you are trained and drilled over and over and over and over in any discipline, that thing that you've trained for, when it occurs, you don't have to process it and think about it. You react immediately. Whether you are naturally a reactor or a flincher no longer enters into the equation. Now, the flinchers may need more drills, more practice, more repetitions to kind of drill that out of them. 
and the reactors might need more practice of how to assess the situation as you react. But training, whether it's military, athletic, mathematic, which obviously I fail that aspect, but whatever drilling you're doing, whatever training you're doing, that makes you appear smarter, faster, a better, quicker decision maker than you may actually be because you cut out the middleman and the middleman being your mind. If you have a physical reaction to something, that's always quicker than you have to process in deciding upon a physical reaction to something. And so whether you're afraid of the dark, whether you aren't very good at naturally reacting to things, whether you're too good at it and you don't think enough, if you decide to drill and practice on that one thing, you can become the other. You, you can switch into the other camp. If you are a natural reactor to you are always overstepping your bounds, you're always running your mouth without thinking, you're always charging headlong into a challenge and then realizing I jumped out without a parachute, you can train yourself to slow down your reaction process. You can train yourself to go through a decision-making process. If you are the opposite side where you are always hamstrung by inaction, your fear of failure is stopping you. Your fear of the task, your fear of the darkness, whatever that may be. If you're that person, you can drill and practice and drill and practice until you are a reactor. Even if inside your body you're not aware that you're reacting, you're, you can practice yourself until you are that other type of person. And watching Ayla the other day, it made me think, it is so important to get those experiences young so that you have a lifetime of building up your practiced response to when you get to those type of situations. Now, many of us do not get that opportunity. Many of us are finding out as adults, I have failed in the same capacity for three decades. And I'm sick of it. And around New Year's, this is the time when people just decide, please, I need a fresh start. And as humans, we love fresh, clean starts. It's just way more satisfying to start something on a Monday than on a Wednesday. It's way more satisfying to start something on January 1st than on December 30th. It's just the way we're wired. We care about those things. They're weighty to us. They matter. And so we should roll with that. We shouldn't rely upon them. But when the opportunity presents itself for a clean break... Let's take it. So January 1st is coming here. For as of right now, it's a day and a half away. What habits have you become accustomed to that you don't want happening? And what habits do you need to become accustomed to that you've never built up those, those movement patterns to? Are you a flincher? Are you an overreactor? Either one we can fix. So when that occurs... When you, when you want to start your process, it's the same thing as, as deciding what monster do I want to be more like? Who spends time in this darkness? What does that darkness look like? How do I get there? We're analyzing that for the person you want to be more like in 2023. So now think about what do I no longer want to be tripped up by? Why am I always making that same decision? Why am I always hanging myself out to dry in this one capacity? Maybe it's I always bite off more than I can eat with races. I sign up for a million races. I'm not prepared for any of them. I cancel half of, of them. I show up for some, and I'm just way, way, way outclassed. I don't have the fitness to get through. I say I'm never going to do it again. My spouse rolls her eyes at me because then I'm just going to sign up again right away for next year. Or am I the opposite? 
do I sit here and I wish my body looked different? I wish I were faster. I wish I could have more endurance. I'm tired of coming last in races or not even signing up for races because I don't have the fitness or the confidence to do so. I'm a flincher. I flinch away from my problems. I'm an overreactor. I react headlong into problems without even thinking. Whatever camp you're in, identify that pattern. What is that historical mistake that you could look back on your timeline and you would just see consistent blips? I did it here. I did it here. I did it here. I did it here. I did it going back as far as I can think. I've been a procrastinator. I've shied away from problems. I have put myself out on a ledge without making sure the ledge was stable. Identify those things and you get to start in one and a half days. You've got a day and a half to get it all down on paper and make a plan. Just like you're making a plan for how you're going to spend more time in the darkness, we're making a plan for how I can start right now. Just like that author stated in the book, start training myself so that I appear smarter and more successful than I may actually naturally be because I have a set reaction already practiced and in place for when this thing pops up in my life. I'm always missing my workout window. What do I practice so that I don't even have to think when I get to the point where it's like, I could do it now or I could do it later. If you ask yourself the question, you're already setting yourself up for failure. But if the question doesn't get asked, if that that signal bypasses your mind and goes right into your practice reaction, you don't miss your workout window. If I really, really, really need to lose some weight, but I just can't get consistent with workouts, how are you going to build in practicing that repetition so that you don't miss your workouts or so that you don't overindulge on on certain types of food or bad habits that are leading here? If it's a habit you're working on breaking, what are the things that always trigger the habit? How are we going to shortcut that process? If it's a type of racing, if it's a type of workout, if you are a high-level athlete and you know the only reason I'm losing The only reason I ever get beat is because I'm just not doing this one thing that the other people are doing. I just don't have any interest in it, but I'm really interested in winning. How do you set it up so that you have an easy win on day one and an easy win on day two and an easy win on day three? You're getting all the work in in small little doses and management so that you can learn to enjoy it and like it and it becomes routine. And once it's routine, you're already a high level athlete. Now you can just complete it because you get your work done. It just never was on your calendar. How do you ensure that it makes its way onto your calendar so that you stop losing your races for the same silly little issues? If you're like me, if you've spent your recent time injured, or maybe not even recent, if you have a track record with injuries, and they're all stemming from the same nonsense, how do you go about ensuring that you're done doing rehab and it's time to do prehab? That is a massive focus of mine in 2023. How do I get to the start line? How does that happen? It's written down in my notes app. I have every little thing that I know I am doing to shoot myself in the foot. And every way I have of counteracting that over and over and over so that eventually I don't even have to think anymore about what I need to do correctly. Instead, I'm just acting. You spend enough time in the dark and you can see in the dark. You spend enough time doing these tiny little rote memorization or or physical repetitions and you don't have to think anymore. You can just do it. So those are the two things I want people to identify. Who do I want to be more like? 
And what are they doing that I am not that will allow me to be more like that? Not necessarily them. You don't want to be like a person, but you would want to have a few more of their characteristics manifest in yourself. And what am I currently not doing or doing that needs to be eradicated or fine-tuned or smoothed out? And what is that daily process I have of making it so that I can train myself from one natural reaction into a different natural reaction? We don't have to be a flincher our whole life. We don't have to be a full steam ahead, blinders on reactor our entire life. We get to be whatever we want to be, but the cost is those reps, those hundreds, those thousands, those tens of thousands of reps. And if they're uninterrupted, every rep makes the next rep easier. Now, just like we talked about in the last episode, it's not always linear progression. However, if your constant leaning is forward with purpose, you'll eventually progress up. So that's the end of my soapbox here. From here on out, we're going to wrap this year up by getting rid of Q&As. But I really, really, really want everyone to take this to heart because it's near and dear to my heart right now. This is what I'm focused on. This is what I'm doing this year. This is what I'm working on with the athletes that I work with. It's the trends you see all over is that now is the time for reflection and action. And so many New Year's resolutions are nonsense. We're not making New Year's resolutions. We're taking New Year's action. So choose your action and implement it. And as you've probably noticed, Kirk's not here. Just me for the first half. And now we've got Lisa here. Kirk finally got what was coming to him. He finally caught COVID. It's been a long time. Two years, two and a half years. Long time. Didn't catch it. Now he got it. He's flat on his back, just like the rest of us, thinking he was superior for all these years. And Kirk, you're not. I'm kind of proud of him. You're proud of him? Yeah, he's doing it. You're not better than us, Kirk. (laughs) So Lisa is going to be the host today. Hey. Hostess with the mostest. That is a phrase I can't stand, so I thought I'd work it into there. And she's going to read off the remaining Q&As from 2022. Do you want me to answer them, too? You want me to read them off and you can answer them? (laughs) That'd probably be good. Yeah. You'll read them. I'll answer them. And when I don't do a good job, you can fill in the blanks. And when I get my math wrong, okay. you can correct me. Right. That's Kirk does that a lot, as I'm sure you know. So we're going to kick it off with, I think it's a question from someone from either Australia or New Zealand. So let's rock. Okay. I'm just going to read it. Do it. Good morning, legends. Firstly, I like it already. <laughs> firstly, great podcast. Longtime listener. First time q and air Shoe question. Oh, this is not for me then. Mm. The new Innovate Trailfly Ultra 280 is advertised as having nitrogen-infused midsole foam. What does this actually do? Since the air we breathe is 78% nitrogen anyway, does nitrogen-infused just mean the midsole foam is infused with just air bubbles? Laffy face times four. It's a good question. I can't speak to the veracity of whatever numbers you used in there because, once again, this is not a math podcast. But we're going to get a little techie on you here. I think a lot of people understand how carbon plates work. I think a lot of people understand how super foam works. But most people probably don't know the process of making super foam and what it actually is and how it's different. So TPU or EVA are the typical foams. EVA is the most common. Any shoe you've ever worn from Nike down to Walmart has some form of EVA foam. It's pretty dense. It's decently light. 
It wears pretty well. It compacts over time. We all see how that happens. They feel different after a while. So what super foams have done is they have changed the process for making foam. So I'm actually going to get a little too techy here. It's going to turn some of you off, but this is how super foams are made. But I'm going to do it at like the least techy level of reasoning. So you tell me if at the end of this, you get what we're talking about. <laughs> okay. So super critical foams, super critical anything is something that exists above the critical temperature or pressure level of whatever that, uh, that liquid or gas is supposed to be like. And a super critical really anything kind of exists in between liquid and gas. And so it's really good for foam. So basically what happens is you take a super critical foam and you quickly, very quickly in a, in a machine, either raise the temperature fast and high, or you drop the pressure. It has to be very quick and it causes the compound to get unstable. And when it's unstable, it reacts by having kind of a combustion inside and it creates bubbling with most of the types of foam that they're using here. It creates rapid bubbling. And then as soon as that process occurs and the bubbles start to expand, they do the opposite. They either drop the temperature down low, cold to freeze the process from happening, or they raise the temperature. I mean, not the temperature, the pressure really high, really fast. And that basically whatever form it achieved in the process is stopped right there. So you take foam that was, let's say this big, and now it's this big, has the same amount of everything, and it has the same basic strength to it, but now it's way bigger. And now you can cut the same slabs out of it, and it weighs way less because the bubbling process has been captured, and now there's just more space in between there that's taken up by not foam, but by the different uh, gas gaseous agents that they're using. Does so, that break down quicker then? It can. That's why they have to dial these things in. So it can be super springy and then it has less durability or it can be a little bit more dull and it lasts longer. That's why not all super foams react the same. Basically comes down to how good your R&D department is with dialing in what sort of super critical components you use to make it. So basically they take something, they change the temperature, the pressure drastically, it starts to expand like crazy and they freeze it right there. And that's the new foam. So when they say nitrogen infused, what they do is they take liquid nitrogen and before the process begins, they inject it into the existing supercritical foam. Then when they do that process of raising the temperature or dropping the pressure, the nitrogen reacts along with the supercritical foam. Nitrogen at that point changes from liquid nitrogen to gaseous, gaseous nitrogen. It becomes air basically, and it expands with it. So some are nitrogen injected or infused, some are not, but it's the same process. You basically cause it to have an unstable reaction and then you quick, like take a snapshot of it right there and that's the new foam. So that's what super critical foam really is. It's just lighter, bouncier, more reactive. Sometimes it breaks down quicker. ZoomX from Nike is probably the most reactive foam and it also is the least durable. So, so yes. is there like a benefit to using nitrogen compared to something else, which is why they're advertising it? Uh, it sounds cooler. Okay. Uh, they, it's no, okay. if they do it right, yes. If they do it wrong, no, it's just how they stabilize it really. And then that's where the plates come into play. If it's too squishy and mushy, the plates give it stability. It has to have something to push back against. Some shoes do it with plates, plastic or carbon. Some plates, some shoes do it by putting kind of like what's called a carrier foam, a regular denser foam around it to give it structure and shape. So you land on the squishy stuff and as it expands and pushes, it runs into some sort of containment system. It's like caging it. I got it. 
Do, is it? Is that a decent explanation? Yeah, I think I can. All right. There you go. So nitrogen is not just injecting air. It's actually liquid nitrogen that is injected in. Okay. Ready for the next one? Yeah. Hopefully it's more shoes. Okay. It's kind of long. Should I read the whole thing? Uh, why don't you skip to the parts that matter? Unless they're compliments, then read them all. Well, I actually don't know, so I'm just going to read the whole thing. <laughs> all right. Here we go. <laughs> Okay, this is from Danny Battle. Hey, Kirk and Bracken. Love the podcast and appreciate all the seasoned info and effort you guys put into it. Keep it up. I did my first couple Spartans a year ago and then decided to start running age group as of the last four races. My goal is to win a race. I've been training hard 20 to 30 miles a week, mostly below threshold and also some threshold work with strength and cross training as well. I grew up playing hockey, so endurance training hasn't been a thing for me. I hear you guys talking about crazy fast paces and wondering how long you think those paces would take for someone like me to hit. My fastest mile is 6.03, and I'm keeping a pace of 9-minute a mile when in zone 2 at around 148 BPM from 4 to 10 miles. Do you think a 7-minute mile for long runs is a realistic goal for a year from now? Two years from now. Haven't heard much on any podcasts about how much you can expect to improve pace over a longer time span with consistent training. Thanks. Oh, wait, and then he has a... I meant zone three, and for long runs, I mean eight to ten miles. In order to keep up my pace over time but stay in zone three, what would you guys recommend for workouts as far as amount of threshold, easy red line strength? Really good question. This kind of shoots right off the trend we had of the last Q&A with people talking about what metrics matter. Do I need to focus on my easy day pace or my hard day pace? I like that he included both metrics. He's currently a 603 miler doing his easy work at nine minutes per mile. That tracks to me. Uh, let's say I'm a four and a half minute miler. I do my easy work at seven to eight. So same thing, about three minutes difference. That seems safe. That seems smart. But just like last week, we don't really need to target zone two and zone three improvements as the metric we're shooting for. We want to target zone four and five improvements and whatever happens in zone two and three along the way is just a byproduct of our improvement. So instead of saying a few years from now, could I be able to keep seven minute pace on my easy long runs? Instead, we should say, how fast could I have my mile two or three years from now? And how much faster could my threshold pace be so that my long runs improve? I once heard Kirk say that you actually don't need to worry about your pace on your slow runs. And what did you think the moment you heard that? Fooey. <laughs> Lisa's a grind. Wake up and grind every day, but she doesn't do quality workouts. If you're doing quality work and you're trying to improve your metrics, don't worry about zone three pace. Keep it in the prescribed BPM and see where it goes. Your easy run and long run average pace will tell me nothing about how ready you are to race or win a race. Your threshold pace, your mile pace, your... If you want to do a long run time trial, your 10 mile pace, that would tell me things. So keep improving that and that's how you'll know. Okay. Ready for another? Oh yeah. This is from Bobby Chombo. Bobby Chombo. Chombo or Chumbo? I've always thought it was Chumbo. I like oh. Chumbo more. I don't know. It's Reminds a fun me name of Chumbo Wumbo. <laughs> a little tub thumping. Yeah, that's a good song. All right, I'll leave you with a Training Tuesday question and answer topic. It sounds like in the endurance cycling world, there's more focus on carbohydrate intake per hour than calories per hour, while in the endurance running world, it's the opposite, with more focus on calories per hour. What are your thoughts on the topic? Is carbohydrate per hour a better target than calories? Have you tried pushing your tolerable carb carbohydrate intake while running? Is you want to do that right? again? 
Yeah. Have you tried pushing your tolerable carbohydrate intake while running? And what was your experience like? That's all right. I stumbled over gaseous three times. I can't put those words together. And I should know gaseous. Yeah, that's for sure. All right. That's a really good question. I wait, like wait, it. There's more. I do understand when cycling, it is easier to digest carbs. So runners may have a very hard time hitting the modern 120 grams per hour target. It's wild to hear about pro cyclists who can utilize 120 to 130 grams of carbohydrates per hour. All right. It's a fantastic question. And he kind of highlighted the difference between cyclists and runners. And I'm going to throw triathletes into there as well. Triathletes are more similar to cyclists than they are runners in their approach to their craft. Runners are pretty archaic with a lot of things, and it's reflected in our products that are marketed to us. Got horns going off like crazy outside. Oh, my goodness. I can't tell if they're honking or if it's the world's slowest car alarm. I think it's a car alarm. It's like a four-second pause in between every single one. We're going to power through. It's that kind of show. Yeah, let's do it. We're together, and that's what matters. That's right. All right, so cyclists care about actual metrics, where runners pretend like they care about actual metrics, and the industries listen. So if you think of what runners fuel with, you would think gels, goo, cliff, any other big ones pop in your mind? No. Goo and Cliff are kind of the two big ones that people think about, and they are marketed to runners and hikers and just general people, outdoors people, who do not care or know how many carbs they can digest per hour, but the average Joe knows calories. 100 calories matters to the average Joe. 30 to 60 grams of carbs, they could care less what the difference is, and most average people have been told that carbs are bad for you. So they're not going to put carbs as the leading metric on the front or on the packaging of their product because if you care about it, you're going to re flip it over and find out how many carbs this has, which we've had to do. We go to races. I'm sitting there in front of that display at REI or wherever, Killington one year, trying to figure out, all right, how many carbs per hour am I going to be able to get in with this and then choosing the one that I like the most. <coughs> Cyclists, however, are dialed in. And so their products are based around the metrics that truly matter, which is carbohydrates per hour, not, um, not calories per hour. Because calories can come from any source, and all sources are not created equal. And we want carbs when we're doing, uh, when we're just burning through energy and trying to replenish it quickly. Carbs, sodium, magnesium, those are the things we care about, some potassium, but we don't care about uh, calories from protein or calories from fat because they're just not useful to us in most races. So that's the reason. The reason is that the industry doesn't respect you as runners because you don't respect yourselves. I feel like I need to be you and just reiterate some points here. Mm -hmm. Okay, so basically your average person, when they go to the store, they, they don't want to see carbs. Correct. Because they think, ooh, carbs are bad. Or but, I don't know what carbs mean. But if you know what you're looking for, you flip it over and you see what carbs it has that yep. you need. Exactly. Okay. I get it. All right. So that's why. Now, in terms of cyclists can take in way more than runners, absolutely. You're not impacting the ground. Your gut is not in as much distress, although you are in a hunched over position, which would make it more difficult. But yeah, they do gut training, just like any uh, runner who cares about, if you have to fuel in a race, you should be doing gut training. That's just the way it works. That's how, I mean, how many times on the treadmill downstairs do I have all my bottles of shaken up and doing my multi-hour efforts and I look like a big old nerd down there with my science experiment set up. Was there another part of that question I missed? I already deleted it. You deleted it. It's gone. <laughs> it's over. So 
basically <laughs> runners, you should worry about it just as much as cyclists and triathletes, but they dial it in and we kind of just wing it. You don't hear cyclists say, oh, I'll probably just take in a gel every 30 to 45 minutes. No, they have an exact number of carbs and how they're sourcing it as their plan. Runners just wing it. That's right. All right, here's another one. John Britton. Hey there, I have a new Q&A question. Before that, I wanted to say that I think the last four weeks or so of episodes have been on point with some really great points that have shaped my current training. And I wonder when this was... Well, John, I'm sorry we wasted your time for the previous two and a half years (laughs) before that. And maybe since then. And maybe since then. How do you think frequent up and downhill efforts compared to long climbs and descents of comparable elevation change? Does one transfer to the other? I feel like the frequent changing style of elevation beats up my body more compared to long climbs where I can get into a rhythm and work more cardiovascularly. Of course, long descents will really beat up the legs, but there aren't multiple uphills to remind me just how beat up they are in that type of workout. Ideally, I would train the same type of elevation change I'll see in my race, but my available trails nearby don't mimic it, and on the treadmill, I can only mimic the uphill aspect. What are your guys' thoughts? Oh, we've got good ones today. That's another really good question. What are you saying? Let's say you have a 4,000-foot mountain or you have a 500-foot mountain. Is Oh, man, I just gave myself math. Doing eight reps of 500 feet any different than doing 4,000-foot reps? The answer is yes. Absolutely. But it's whichever one you have access to. So he's, he's right. When you do shorter reps, you never feel recovered. And it's because the shorter rep encourages you to work a little bit harder. Because if you start out up a 4,000 foot climb, your body immediately self-regulates your energy. You can see how far you are away from your goal and you're just going to take a more measured approach to it. And you can work at the proper rate for the entire climb because as the climb goes on, the effort builds and it feels appropriate. But if you're doing a climb that's an eighth of the distance and you start at the appropriate level for that full distance, the first climb doesn't feel like anything and the second climb doesn't feel like anything and maybe the third and fourth climb don't feel like you're doing any work. And so you end up matching your effort to the duration of the climb you have, not the climb you're preparing for. So you overwork going up, and then the descent is so short that you don't fully recover from it, so you're always just shunting back and forth between two different feelings of unpleasantness. And that can shorten your overall workout and allow you to get less total pounding up and downhill, but it also raises your high-end work potential because you're working harder. Whereas the big, long climbs allow you to get into a steady rhythm, find your actual work rate for the race, but you often pace yourself so well that you don't really get into real damaging efforts until later in the workout. So it's kind of a horse apiece, I'd say. A bird in the hand is worth... Two in the bush. Two in the bush. Is that right? That's it. Yes. (laughs) So that's that part of it. Uh, Which one's better? Honestly, it's better to have both. In a perfect world, you would do one as interval day and one as more of a a tempo or long run day. And that's how you'd balance it out. But... uh, Either way, you have to get your body ready to handle the amount of climbing, the amount of impact on the descents, and the ability to crest and get back to work, as well as get to the bottom of the hill and get back to work up. So if you don't have long uphills near you, like us. You just have to do what you got to do. You do it on the treadmill? You Well, you still do both. You do your long climbs on the treadmill, and then you just do your days where you do mind-numbing... Hill repeats? Hill repeats over at the rock on our murder mile sim fun 98 feet per rep are you ready oh i was born ready brandon young 
possible Q&A question or just DM question, but I'm really curious. Bracken and Kirk talk a lot about 5K times for elites, but what are some 5K, 10K times age group and or open podiums tend to be? Ooh, well, it's changed over the years. The requirements for, I assume he's talking OCR. Uh, if you're talking road racing, it just depends on who shows up. There are days where you will just flat out win a race in 18 minutes as a man and days where that doesn't make your age group podium because it's about who shows up. So if we're looking at, let's say, ultra running, big trail running, or obstacle racing, generally, you got to take, I don't know, I would say as a man, to be competitive at anything you step foot onto, it would be great to be able to break 18, and as a woman, to be able to break 20 20, 30, somewhere in there. Two, two and a half minutes behind the men. Uh, if you're talking, just be competitive and you don't necessarily care if you're going to win, but make a podium at some races. Uh, break 19, 19, 30 for the guys and, I don't know, take two minutes off of that. 21, 22 minutes for the women. And then just as in the older age groups or just to be generally competitive, top five, top 10, Make it 20 minutes flat for the guys. If you can break 20 and girls, if you can break 22, then you're probably going to have enough running to stay in contention as long as your other skills like uphills, downhills, technical running. If you're talking OCR, then your obstacle proficiency. But those would be the metrics I'd put on there. Yeah, I probably would too if I had to like put some numbers on it. Are you just happy because you're in one of those ranges? No, actually, I kind of zoned out. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you're just giving me like, blown smoke? Well, I feel like Kirk... Would add conversation, not just. All right, let me let me adapt that to you. How many times do you think you need to be able to vomit either in your throat or all the way out during a five k and still break twenty one to be successful? Mm, At least three. Three is that average or is that your PR? Oh no, that's not a PR. It's average. Yeah. Not bad. Thank you. Puke and rally, baby. That's right. Puke and rally. Okay. Oh oh, guilt trip. Hey, hey, never got my running form question answered. We answered it last episode. Okay, good. He has another question, actually, regarding how to run during heavy carry. I find that with heavy weight on my shoulder, upper back, that it pulls my center of mass backwards. And when I try to run, I really heel strike. And so I'm mainly during some sort of fast walk, shuffle, waddle. How do I fix this? Do I need to fix it? Are people actually able to run with something like proper form with a sandbag or bucket? So this would be the OCR question specifically here. If you have to run under weight, is it okay to have really different form and shuffle walk? Or is it possible to run well? Yeah, it's possible to run well. But? But it takes a lot of work. Yeah. As you well know. Obviously. (laughs) All those times you've spent working. Buckets buckets and sandbags and all those other things you've never had any desire to touch in your life did you you did one ocr race did you do a carry in that race oh gosh i don't remember i was put in a timeout box (laughs) i wasn't carrying anything i thought my shame i thought there might have been one carry on course i don't don't know. know anyway yeah it just takes time well i've carried children a lot not in races you don't run with them that's true can i go yeah uh, you just have to spend time doing it. And it's as simple as do like a six to seven minute carry to end a lifting workout. Start by doing that. 
loaded carries there and then progress over time and then do uh do either the john yatsko dog loop where you're just basically you're running 800 to 1,000 meters at a time and then carry something progressive forward and then run another half mile and then carry it again. Or do a real good ones, terrible two mile, 400 meter run, 400 meter carry. Repeat that until two miles is up. Do that once a week for a while and you'll get really good at carries. Take a look. If you're an OCR person, you've probably already watched it, but go back and take a look at uh, any of the Jacksonville U.S. National Series races uh, and uh, San Luis Obispo. Uh, any any national series race that's been filmed where the terrain is runnable, the people up at the front are running, uh, I would say, well under nine minutes, if not eight minutes per mile under 60 to 70 pounds of load. So, yeah, it's very, very possible. It just takes time and you have to develop your technique. And it is certainly worth doing. It's one of those freebies on course for one hour uh, for 30 minutes of work per week. You could gain. 30 seconds to a minute in a race there's really nothing else other than grip strength that you can do that little amount of work for that big of a payoff totally worth it okay fair enough all right this was emailed to you so it's serious he's lucky i checked my email it's from christopher hayes welcome chris hi bracken just wanted to pose a question for the next q a in the last few episodes the elliptical has been brought up What are some good strategies to use the elliptical effectively for training, mainly ultras? I live in Colorado, so when I can't run, I use the elliptical. Thanks, and y'all keep up the great work. Honestly, not a lot. You're not going to get a whole lot better off the elliptical, but you can use it for extra time on feet, and you can get a lot of easy and recovery work in. I would use it most for just steady, easy work. If you want to get something out of it... Rather than trying to do intervals or something, I might just throw weight on. I might put a little vest, weighted vest on. Uh, it doesn't take you through any range of motion. And it makes it really difficult to get an actual quality anaerobic effort in. Some people can do it. But if you're trying to just get the cardiovascular benefit of something nasty and hard, which in ultra training you might want to do non-impact so that you can get the work and still be able to spend a ton of time running, time on feet, I would get on a bike salt bike spin bike you could do a rower even or um, steep treadmill intervals but i don't find personally much benefit because most ellipticals have a very short range of motion but all those other things like uh, mitochondria um, red blood cells um, capillary bed any of those production processes densifying processes in your body those can all happen on the elliptical so keep it easy and just add in lots of volume time on feet and maybe do it with a weight vest on that'll help your your feet and ankles and all those tendons in there get stronger good i like it okay josh chase for the next q a how do you measure progress and how impactful is it example i train to be better at 10k my PR went from 51.30 in November of 2021 to 50.55 in November of 2022. It seems like a lot of work for 35 seconds of improvement. Josh Chase, you're a troll, so I'm going to troll you. No, I'm not going to do that. It's a good question. I would say 30 seconds of improvement would be fantastic. Getting better is getting better. Now, when you're talking about the 50-minute time range, 30 seconds is less beneficial than doing it at the 30 minute or the 40 minute time range but still getting better is something to be proud of now that's a lot of work is it worth doing that's obviously up to the individual some people would 
you know, kill their mother-in-law for 30 seconds in a race. Watch out, Mom. Not saying I would. <laughs> Not saying I wouldn't. Other people would need 30 seconds per mile to be worth offing a family member. So it's really up to you. And also, I don't know what type of work that took. You say it seems like a lot of work. Does that mean it took a lot of time? 12 months in between races, yeah, that's a lot of time. But how much of that was just specifically dedicated towards getting better at the 10K? My guess is if you're a 50-minute 10K runner, what is that? That's eight-something per mile. If you put 12 months of training in, you would cut minutes off, not 30 seconds, which means that you probably didn't dedicate your all your available training time just to being better at the 10k that would be my guess that's presumptuous it's maybe i don't know insulting but at eight minute pace you could probably chop off 20 to 30 seconds per mile in a year with day in day out training for a 10k so my my question i guess would be are you saying it's just a long time to not gain much or did you really go all in on 10k and know that you didn't leave any stone unturned Look at that. Is this the first time ever we're done in less time than we thought we would? Probably. Seems like it's you, Kirk. I'm pretty effective. I think it's Kirk. I meant to say efficient. Kirk's long-winded. He cannot stop talking. Not me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, ladies and gents, thanks for sticking with us throughout 2020. We look forward to 2023. It's kind of nice that you're here because this company we have going here, The Running Public, directly benefits our family. And we love the lifestyle it affords us. And the type of work I do keeps me happy. And the last job I had did not keep me happy. And thus it impacted you as well as me. So thank you all for your support. Thanks for letting us do what we love to do. And we look forward to an awesome year in 2023 and and an even better year. We got a lot planned. Can't wait to, over the next few weeks, lay out what we're going to do. Can I be Kirk? Yeah. Okay, don't forget, folks, we have shirts, hats, fleece-lined hats. Bracken and Lisa, sorry you don't have those yet. I'm not going to send them to you until next month when the weather starts getting hot in Wisconsin. But they're up on the website, so go ahead and grab yourself some. Get yourself some. That was good. Also, (laughs) starting in January, the Running Public Online Training Program is going to evolve. Currently, it is a running program with an OCR emphasis, and there's a $5 strength add-on. Going forward, there will be it will be split into a running-specific program or an OCR-specific program. Strength training added in for both of them. Strength training for runners for the running plan, for OCR-specific athletes with much more grip emphasis for the OCR plan. So those two new options will be appearing on the website. If you are currently on the plan and you want to switch, just cancel the plan. The first email you received when you signed up was a confirmation slash receipt from PayPal. There's a cancellation link in there. If you cannot figure it out and you can't go to your PayPal and cancel it, uh, message us and we will try to get it taken care of on our end. But the power is in your hands to cancel that and then sign up for the one that you want. It's going to be exciting. And then we have more than that coming. So just hold on to your butts. You can find that at therunningpublic.com. I'm good at this. Happy New Year's. See you next year. Bye.